If you would turn back with me to the book of Psalms as we resume uh, this study after a couple of weeks of excellent preaching by some guests. Let us turn to Psalm 26. As you turn there, I want to remind you of a story that is true that I remember from several years ago early in my ministry. We were having a vacation Bible school and a young lady in the class refused to admit that she had ever sinned. Now, this was a problem because the Bible lesson that day included an illustration where the children to write down, were to write down a sin on a slip of paper, and then we would dip that piece of paper in a uh, concoction in a glass in which the ink would be wiped off from the paper. The problem was, this girl said, I've never done anything wrong. Well, at first blush, this particular psalm appears to be saying that David is claiming to be sinless or perfect. But as we study this psalm together, we'll look at more the deep understanding of David's faith and his own understanding of his sin. Follow along as I read from Psalm 26. Vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity and I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. Prove me, O Lord, and try me. Test my heart and my mind, for your steadfast love is before my eyes, and I walk in your faithfulness. I do not sit with men of falsehood, nor do I consort with hypocrites. I hate the assembly of evildoers, and I will not sit with the wicked. I wash my hands in innocence and go around your altar, O Lord, proclaiming thanksgiving aloud and telling all your wondrous deeds. O Lord, I love the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. Do not sweep my soul away with sinners, nor my life with bloodthirsty men, in whose hands are evil devices, and whose right hands are full of bribes. But as for me, I shall walk in my integrity. Redeem me and be gracious to me. My foot stands on level ground in the great assembly I will bless the Lord. As we consider this reading of God's word, inspired by the Holy Spirit, true and everlasting. Let's bow in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this portion of it. And we pray that your spirit might be upon us, that we might hear it and understand it and apply it to our hearts. Lord, I also pray that whatever is thought here, whatever is spoken here might be consistent with your own word or else pass away and never be heard from again. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I have to say, if you are a leader for any amount of time, whether it's in the workplace or in an institution or in a church or wherever it might be, you are going to be criticized. Now, sometimes that is constructive criticism, and as leaders, we must figure out how to wisely and humbly take constructive criticism. But sometimes it will be unfairly with slanderous accusations. Now hopefully a leader on the one hand leads, uh, learns humility so they can deal with the constructive criticism. But on the other hand, a wise leader will also learn how to handle slanderous accusations. 
Now you see, most commentators feel that David is writing this psalm from perhaps a situation in which he is accused slanderously, and so therefore, in this particular situation, he is claiming innocence or claiming to have handled things properly. In fact, in Spurgeon's day, there were commentators uh, over a hundred years ago now who suggested that this may have been written during the time of the murder of Ishbosheth, uh, the son of Saul, who was put in as king of Israel, and David may have been accused or slandered to have had something to do with that murder. Now, that's conjecture, speculation. We don't know that that is particularly the case, but we do know that David writes as a leader who is criticized both fairly at times and unfairly at times. And yet, even before the Lord, here, David is defending his integrity with a humility that asks the Lord to consider and expose him or to reward him in his circumstances. What about you? When you're standing before God, And you may have been accused of sin, either rightly or wrongly. How do you interact with God? Well, first of all, David says, in essence, judge me. Secondly, he says, judge my actions. And finally, he asks the Lord to judge with distinction. Now it's interesting, all of the early trans, or all of the modern translations, rather, of this particular passage use the word vindicate in this early part of the book. But if you go back to the Geneva Bible, which is actually prior to the King James Version of the Bible, you find the word judge, judge me. Now both of these words are, of course, alternatives for the word in Hebrew that is used here. The idea here is that God would judge or vindicate someone. In other words, see if that person truly is right, and if so, then put things right. So David is asking the Lord to judge him. Now, when I first read this psalm, like others that may have done so this past week in preparation for it, you think, is David really saying He is perfect and blameless and has integrity. In fact, the word integrity here actually means perfection or completion or being blameless. And so we look at this and we say, does this mean David says, Lord, you have to do what's right for me because I'm such a wonderful person? But I don't think that's what David is doing I think in context here, when he uses the word vindicate, it's not just Lord set things right, it's also the word judge. Judge me. Judge me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity and I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. In other words, he's asking the Lord in essence to judge his integrity. Is he truly walking blamelessly, is he truly without sin? If so, this is what it would look like. He is trusting in the Lord. He is not just saying that he believes in God. He is not just giving the correct theology or doctrine in his writings. He is actually trusting his life in the Lord. 
So his behavior suggests that his trust is not in himself, in his own walk or behavior, but is in the Lord. Then he says, I will not wobble. That's what it means here when it says without wavering. It's actually a verb here. I will not be shaken. I will not wobble. In other words, my trust is in you alone. It's not in other things. It's not in other military prowess. It's not in my ability to lead this people. My trust is in the Lord. But then, as if to prove this point, we come to verse 2. It says, prove me, O Lord, and try me, test my heart and my mind. In other words, as Spurgeon says about this, this is trial by three things. First of all, trial by touch. Prove me. A testing. It's also a trial by smell. The word try me here is indicating here this is a, this is a test about basically what is your life really like. When we come into your presence, what is the smell test? What is the thing we see on the forefront? And finally, a test by fire. This last word for test is the word to smelt or to refine. In other words, it's the the metal that's going to be going through the, the deep and heavy hot fire that will melt away all the impurities from the metal, the precious metal of gold or silver. And here he says, test me, test me, test me. Three different words for test, different kinds of trials. In other words, it's, it's on the one hand, see if I really am a man of faith and go even deeper to expose even the deep, dark places of my heart. You see, this is consistent with David's call in other places. In Psalm 139, a favorite of many, he ends that psalm with, Search me, search my heart, see if there is any way offensive in me. And here is much the same thing. David's heart is always that God would expose his sin. And of course, whether David wrote this before his sin with Bathsheba, when he was publicly exposed, or whether this was written afterwards, this man, after God's own heart, knows that he needs God to constantly look at his heart and test it so that any impurities may be removed. So how then can David say, because he's asking God to test him, how can he say, judge me because I have walked in my integrity? Because the basis of this integrity is not David himself, but is the Lord. Verse 3 says this, Because, or for, your hesed, your steadfast love, or mercy, or whatever your translation has, is before my eyes. What is he saying here? David is saying, because your covenant faithfulness is always before me. In other words, David recognizing that his heart needs to be tried and tested is basing his integrity upon his faith in the God of the covenant. Always for him as a leader, if he is a man of faith, he is looking at the faithfulness of God to him. And then he makes this vow, I will walk in your truth. The word faithfulness here is also the word truth, emmet. 
If you ever knew someone in, in old days named Emmett, I haven't heard that name for a long time, but the word Emmett means truth. This is a vow to walk in the truth of God. In other words, God's covenant promises, God's law, God's grace, all of those things connected with God's relationship with his people, that is the basis of the integrity of David. It's not his ability to follow these things. It's not the fact that he is blameless on his own merits. In fact, you might understand this idea of steadfast love or covenant faithfulness is because God is faithful to his people who have been unfaithful. So the basis of his integrity is his trust and faith in the Lord who has redeemed him and constantly takes the sin away from his heart. Now, let's ask the question, have you ever been unfairly accused at home? Now, if you are a child, you might understand there might be a time when you have taken the punishment for a brother or sister Or perhaps dad has done something, taken the cookies from the cookie jar, so to speak, and the kids get blamed for it. Of course, that never happens in our house. So what is the difference here? The difference here is what is consistent or inconsistent with your reputation and your behavior. Are you known for someone breaking things or stealing things or doing things that are not appropriate? then you're more likely to be blamed. Is this not true? Are you consistently someone who tries to do what is right? Well, the problem with this is we're all sinners. All of us at times have taken the cookie from the cookie jar. All of us at times have broken things or done things we're not proud of. Sometimes somebody else gets blamed for it instead of us. But the basis of our integrity is not our own character or our own righteousness. Now, we should have a good character and a good reputation, and we should be known as those who are desiring righteousness. But before a holy God, one sin disqualifies us from being righteous or having a character of blamelessness. But by faith, those who understand the covenant faithfulness of God, who trust in the God of the promise, who always before them and in their life are pursuing the God of the covenant, the God who is faithful and true, then they will be given the blameless character and reputation of their Savior Jesus Christ with his righteousness So that when God looks at us and judges us, he judges us not based on our unworthiness, but on Christ's holy and blameless life. That is how David is asking God to judge him. In the blamelessness of his salvation through faith. And here is how it should look like. Once we are saved and a part of the people of God, he begins to tell about the types of actions that believers should pursue, not in order to earn their salvation, but because they are already saved by God, because they are under his covenant of grace. First of all, there's a separation from the wicked. David says, I don't sit with men of falsehood, nor 
Do I consort with hypocrites? I hate the assembly of evildoers. I will not sit with the wicked. First of all, separation from men of vanity. This men of falsehood is the word vain men or worthless men, empty men. You know what that's like. Men who pursue vain or empty pursuits. Those whose lives are dedicated not to anything purposeful, but to just go through life doing nothing productive, nothing right in the eyes of God. He says, I'm not going to hang out with those people. He also talks about those who are hidden, and the word here is appropriate for the context, hypocrites. Those who say they believe, those who may claim to be under the covenant of God by faith, but really, in reality, they're not. You know, those who say things, but do other things in their life. Sunday may be a day where their lips sing praise to God, but Monday is a day where they walk into evil. It says that here, I do not consort with hypocrites. Thirdly, he says... I hate the assembly of evildoers. There's a separation from the assembly of evildoers. Now, it's interesting, the particular word that's used here is a word that's spoken of the people of God, an assembly or congregation. In essence, he's perhaps looking forward to the days when John will write the book of Revelation and talk about how one church is like a synagogue of Satan. In other words, they gather together not to worship God, but to worship themselves, or false gods, or the latest sin fads of the day. He says, we are different. If we are walking in integrity and following a program of faith in the Lord, we are going to separate ourselves to some degree from the wicked. It doesn't mean we can't live in the world and associate with those who are wicked. Obviously we do. We do not only for evangelistic purposes, but to carry on everyday life and business. But there is something different about our life because we are dedicated to serving the Lord in righteousness. And so therefore, the next part of this passage talks about the need for purification. He says, I wash my hands in innocence and go around your altar, O Lord. Now, on one hand, you read this the first time and you say, oh, he's saying, look, I wash my hands, I'm free of guilt. And in one sense, that's true. He's washing his hands in what? Hopefully, in the blood of Christ and the sacrifices of his day. But the idea here is the need to be purified before you enter the tabernacle of God. For that's what he's doing, and go around your altar. The word is encircle, uh, to to encircle the altar. And and what is it that, that you do when you go to the altar in David's day? You're going into worship. You're going into the presence of God. And in order to do so, you're doing so in humility, recognizing your inability to do that without sacrifice for your sins. And so he recognizes that his actions are, one, to separate himself from what is wicked and who are the wicked, but secondly, that he himself needs to be purified. Because then the heart of the matter is this. Worship. What's he doing around the altar? 
He's proclaiming thanksgiving aloud and telling all your marvelous or wonderful deeds. And then he says, O Lord, I love the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. You see the heart of the believer who is truly walking in integrity because he has faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. His main desire and goal in life is to be with God and to worship him and proclaim his marvels. To have thanksgiving. To love God's house and to love God's glory. Notice what he says. I love the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. Now we don't have the same house. It's not the temple in Jerusalem up on Mount Zion and the Temple Mount. But this is a place, isn't it? It's the place where God's people gather. We're told in the New Testament that the people of God, the church, is where the Holy Spirit dwells. You know, there's an increasing focus, isn't there, around our country on what folks say or how folks feel. We tend to think that being very religious or being very spiritual is is an emotion and a feeling, and it causes us to say things out loud. Now, should we have feelings and emotions and say things out loud? Absolutely. I even heard that there were a few amens last week, and good, there needs to be. But more and more, we as Christians hear people saying, oh yeah, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, I just don't do the church thing. That's a hypocrite. The person who says they love Jesus Christ, love Jesus' bride, the church. Now the church is made up of imperfect people, and sometimes they aggravate us, and sometimes we get frustrated, And sometimes we recognize our contributions are messy. But if you don't do the church thing, you don't have the faith and heart of David. You don't have the wisdom and love of Paul. You don't understand the sacrifice of Jesus Christ because he came to die on the cross for the church. Worship is a central part of the believer's life. And this part of separation is not just that we come in the doors on Sunday morning and worship together. It means that we truly love God's people. We want to associate with them. Now, it doesn't mean it's always going to be the desire that I I like everybody the same way and, and I like everything about the church and everything it does and all the ministries it has. No, we're going to be critical sometimes. Sometimes we're not going to like everything that's done in the church or in the people of the church, but we are called to love God's people, and we are called to love worshiping and praising and proclaiming the marvels of God. These are the actions of a man of faith. And if you notice throughout the Psalms that are written by David, he comes again and again to his love to be in the house of God. Remember who this is. He is a warrior who is good at warfare. He is a musician and a poet who has great skill. He is the king of the nation of God's people with judging responsibilities and administrative responsibilities and all those things. But time and time again, what does David say is the heart of his love and desire? Being with God 
worshiping him and being among the assembly of his people. It is crucial that when people around see our proclamation of faith in Jesus Christ, they see us desiring to be among God's people praising God. Otherwise, we're just like those hypocrites and those vanity men. We're just like those who would sit with the wicked instead of the righteous. So then David calls out, judge with distinction. Verse 9, do not sweep my soul away with sinners, nor my life with bloodthirsty men, in whose hands are evil devices and whose right hands are full of bribes. He could have used a lot of descriptive language to talk about men that deserve judgment. He could have even said things that applied to himself. His request here, if he really was saying, God, I'm blameless, there's nothing wrong with me, I'm a perfect person, then why would he have this request? I don't want to be following the fate of wicked men. Please spare me from this common fate. And of course, what is the fate of wicked men? Hell, death, destruction. The request here, in essence, is given in verse 11. Redeem me and be gracious to me. Now, if David was claiming to be righteous in his own works, he wouldn't need to be redeemed or rescued or shown grace. But here he asks for it. His request is for redemption and grace. I have to say, it's a different experience when you sit in a worship service where you don't understand what anybody is saying. This has happened to me several times now on my five trips to Latvia. I really haven't made an effort to learn Latvian. I'm there maybe one week or ten days every couple of years. And yet at the same time, I sit there at a worship service. I'm almost always asked to preach at least one Sunday. And so I do. I preach and it's translated into Latvian or maybe this time I think it was translated into Russian. And as I sit through that worship service, I don't understand the songs. I don't understand all the things that are done. Sometimes I can kind of figure out if they're, if they're reciting a catechism question or they're reciting the Apostles' Creed or the Lord's Prayer or something like that. I can sort of understand those things. But when it comes to the part of the service where they have the Lord's Supper, I don't understand a word they're saying. I should, I should qualify that. Sometimes I can understand the word Jesus or something like that. But I know what they're doing. And I know the words. And then the Lord's Supper in that place across the world with people that I barely know, I know that with them together, I'm being told I'm a sinner. And I need to be redeemed. This is what David has realized as he's asked God to judge him, as he talks about his integrity and how perhaps even in a situation where he's being slanderously accused of something and he's figuring out how to do it and asking God to vindicate him in this situation, he recognizes as God tests him and proves him and puts him through the fire and as he tries to tell God, I'm doing my best, he recognizes I still need to be redeemed. My sin is great. But as for me, 
I will walk. Notice at the beginning he said, I have walked. Now he says, I will or I shall walk in my integrity. His integrity based not upon his own works or his own righteousness, but upon his faith in a forgiving God who has removed his sins as far as the east is from the west. The believer who walks with the Lord always has his pause to consider his ways and his need for God's redemptive grace. So he says, my foot stands on level ground. In the great assembly, I will bless the Lord. You see, he has confidence in the Lord's assembly as he is committed to continue to walk in integrity. His integrity is not based upon his ability to keep things together. If you have that kind of faith, at some point it's all going to come apart. It's going to unravel when the tough times come, when the distress comes, when the, bear, the burdens of the day become overbearing, you will not be able to get through the day. But if your faith is in a redeeming Savior, Jesus Christ, then through the thick things, through the valleys, through the difficult times, through the slanderous accusations, through the times when it looks as if the world is falling apart, we have confidence In the assembly of the Lord, notice this, it says, in the great assembly, I will praise the Lord. That is, in the assembly of God's people from every nation, tribe, and language, we will be there. If we don't like praising God now, what are we going to do when that's what we're supposed to do for all eternity? I'm writing, I just finished writing the test for my class in Latvia. It has dates they have to memorize. It has scripture passages they have to refer to. It has theological things that they have to know in order to teach the sections of Old Testament history from Joshua to Esther. I have to say, the students in one sense have to have a willingness to be tested, don't they? After all, they're the ones that are going to do the test. They're the ones who have to memorize things and read things. And, and, of course, there was all kinds of work done for this testing. But this willingness to be tested is in our willingness and desire to be in God's relationship. That is, to be with God, to, to have him near us and with us and strengthen us and redeem us and cause us to be with him forever no matter the circumstances. You see, in the end, our desire to have fellowship with God is in part a desire to have the impurities of our sin exposed and removed. Why does David say this over and over again? David is a man after God's own heart. God himself, even after the sin of Bathsheba, said, I've taken care of your sin. And yet David writes continuously, search me and know my heart. Expose my sin. That's scary. Do you want everybody to know your sin? Do you want it written down in the annals of history to always be seen by everybody else? David did. He recognized that his relationship with God was more important than anything else in life. And so he says, in the end, Lord, judge me, test me, try me, search me. For Lord, I love to be in your house. Let's pray. Father, give us this desire to love to be amongst your people 
to love to sing praises to you, to love your assembly. Lord, remove the impurities from us. Help us to be men and women and children of integrity who walk with you and talk with you and serve you. Lord, remove our sin. Remove the impurities that by your grace we may come to you and say, Lord, I'm walking in my integrity based upon the foundation of my trust in you as I walk in your truth. I pray all these things in Jesus' name.